Good morning. The days of Noah. When we think about the days of Noah, well, first of all, the scripture that Bill read is perfect. It's exactly how I wanted to open the service. I didn't tell him that, but he got the memo from the Holy Spirit. I was going to go with Luke 17, but Matthew works just fine. That encouragement from Jesus in both of those Gospels is an encouragement to be prepared. And really, the reason the days of Noah are mentioned is because there came a point where people were not expecting the flood. And the flood came. So the primary application of that verse is that, as it was in the days of Noah, means that people were getting married, they were continuing to go on with life, and then the flood came. And they needed to be prepared, and if you weren't prepared at that point, you weren't prepared at all. But as we consider that verse, as it was in the days of Noah, it's true. It's true that people were not prepared, but it's also true that things were going on in the days of Noah. That today's world sort of echoes. Some of the things we see in our world today speak of things that happened during the time prior to the flood. And so when we consider that phrase, and the days of Noah, what we're really thinking about is things were so bad, and then the end came, and judgment came. I think in that regard, we can look and make that application and recognize that, that things are getting very much like they were in the days of Noah. Now, in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, you can turn there with me, We are in the midst of the account written by Noah, which is included by Moses in the book of Genesis, which is the first of the five books of Moses. As we consider this section today, we're going to see the corruption of mankind took place before the flood. And this corruption started with the sins of angels, but it continued all the way through the entire 120 years leading up to the flood. And during that time period, things became so bad. And and listen, things are bad today. They're nowhere near as bad as they were then. However, the message to be prepared is still the same, to be prepared for for God's judgment. So will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So will it be at that time, just like the days of Noah. So the Lord is coming again, amen? And when he does, yes, things will be bad like they are getting every day worse and worse. And I want to caution you before we get into today's study by saying this. One of the things you're going to have to resist the urge to do. You're going to have to resist the urge to read your newspaper and try to figure out where we are in prophetic history. That is, history being fulfilled. Because there's so many people coming to me and they're asking, well, well, Pastor Tim, aren't you going to talk about what's going on here or there? And I've told you before, I always resist the urge to preach out of the newspaper because the newspaper changes, but God's word never changes. Oh, do you think, Pastor Tim, that this is this or that? Or Let me just say no and no. I don't even look at it that way. What I do know is that things are becoming very dark in our world. They may get lighter before the end. They may not. But the message is the same. Be prepared. And so this morning, as we go into this chapter, it's all about really being prepared. Things that these people were not prepared for ultimately came upon them 
and they were drowned in the flood. Let's not be caught unawares. Let's be prepared in our hearts for the Lord's return so that when he does return, we'll be on the ark, so to speak, in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look at your word today, give us eyes to see the truth of your word and be able to apply it to our hearts. May the end result of today's study be that we are prepared like those five wise maidens who entered into the feast because they had oil in their lamps. May we be prepared, the parables and the teachings of Jesus always telling us to be prepared for that day will surely come upon us like a thief in the night. It will come upon us. We won't be prepared unless we're in you. So prepare our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with the sins of angels. And yes, there were a number of angels that fell and that sinned. I'm not sure how many times things like this happened, but this one instance is recorded for us in the book of Genesis. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. We read in chapter 6, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal or corrupt. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now this sets up some things that, that Noah records for us. And the reason Noah records them for us is Noah lived through them. His sons did not, but he did. After the flood, he, he's really, maybe him and his wife are the only people that really even remember when this thing, this whole thing that's described here started. When we talk about the sins of angels, what we learn here is that after 10 generations, the world population would have grown explosively. There are people very concerned about our world's population. It amazes me because we live in a very densely, if not the most densely populated state. And I, I know I don't need to tell you this because you drive on the highway. We also live in the most densely part of that densely populated state, the most densely populated part of this very densely populated state. So that basically means you can't go anywhere at 5 o'clock. If you haven't figured that out already, I literally look at the clock if I'm going to go out and say, no, 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 I'll wait till 6.30. It's gotten to that point. I used to drive down my street and not see a car. I don't remember the last time that's happened. We're building these you know, multi-dwelling units everywhere. We're, I, my wife and I were driving on Route 21 north to come to the church today, and we saw a deer that had been hit with antlers. And I thought to myself, how is this possible in Passaic? I grew up in this area, right over here in East Rutherford. How is it possible that a deer with antlers is laying on the side of the highway? Well, they have nowhere to go. And, and, and this is a sign of the overpopulation of the deer and the lack of vegetation. They're, they're willing to go anywhere. One day, and this is the truth, I don't know if Michelle's, Michelle remembers this, we were in the parking lot, she was walking out there with little Lily, and we saw a deer, not a, not a, a buck, but a, a small deer, a baby deer, in the parking lot where you park your cars. This is for sake. 
We live in a very populated area, and yet even the deer are willing to venture into the cities now. I think they have a gang. (laughs) So we forget how quickly the world can become overpopulated, or areas can be overpopulated. Remember, though, that God had commanded Adam and Eve to multiply, to fill the earth, and they did. That's back in Genesis 1.28. People were living and having many children for hundreds of years. We saw that last week. And they were living in an almost ideal environmental condition. They were living in almost ideal environmental conditions. So imagine these ideal conditions, living hundreds of years, having many, many children. Uh, I'm going to give you a little, a little statistic here because I think this will really blow your mind. Now, what I'm about to say may or may not have actually happened, but it's important to note what could have happened, okay? Just to get an idea of how many people there may have been. We don't know, but clearly we're told here they began to increase in number on the earth. That is, men began to increase in number on the earth. Ten generations would have been enough time to fill the earth as it stands today, and it didn't look like it does today. But it would have been enough time to fill the earth with people, these 10 generations. See, the Lord brought the flood 1,656 years after he created man. Male and female, he created them. If the initial population of two people grew at 2% annually for 1,656 years, they would generate a population of well over 10 trillion people. Take that in. I'm not saying that happened, but it could have, easily. That's the point. Easily, at 2%. What if the birth rate was much higher than that? You see my point? It, it, it's, it doesn't take much to realize that the, the, the earth at that time was not a few guys living in caves with a few women. No, it was, it was much greater than that. Who knows how technologically advanced they had become? Because the world was destroyed. The entire world was destroyed in a flood. It wasn't a localized flood. It was a global flood. And everything was buried in all of these sediment layers. And so we see the fossils. We see the results of the flood. So we really don't know what the world was like in the days of Noah. But one thing we do know, there were lots and lots of people. Check that one off the list. We're living in a time where world population is the overwhelming concern of those people I'm not one of them, by the way, but but there are people who are very happy when we have a pandemic. They're sick, twisted people. They could have been a part of Nazi Germany. They're, They're disgusting in their goals. I want you to just take a step back and think through. If you have a group of people that are bent on reducing the world's population for whatever reason, what kinds of things would they promote? Well, one of the first things they'd want to do is they'd want to promote killing children, especially in the womb. One of the other things they'd probably want to do is sterilize as many people as they could. And the transgender agenda does exactly that. We, we, we talk about that mutilation and we talk about it as a, as a moral issue, but think about it in this way. Everyone who is convinced or deceived to go in that direction, every one of them, is eventually sterilized. See, the insidious agenda of these people, these sick and twisted demonic people, they believe 
that the world is coming to an end. And in that, they're right to some regard. They, they, they came up with this way to, I guess, make money or do something. The climate hoax, the climate agenda. Yes, the climate's changing. Climate's always changing. By the way, did you notice when you got up this morning, the climate changed? Yeah. It was kind of nice yesterday, right? You walked outside, and I'm always thanking God for that remote start. Ooh, I love that remote start. It even heats up my seat. Oh, Pastor Tim, you're so spoiled. I am. I'm an American. I'm spoiled. Climate's always changing. So they come up with this climate agenda. The existential threat to mankind is climate. So if that's true, then we need to do all sorts of things differently. It just so happens that all of the things they want to do tend to move in the direction of reducing population. Now, I don't know whether these people actually believe the nonsense they're peddling, but I can tell you this. Regardless of what they're doing and regardless of how much of what they're saying is even true, they can't do anything to stop it anyway. And even if they could, do you realize that if the United States got on board with their carbon emission goals, that it would only affect 13% of the total carbon emissions? You think China and North Korea and Iran and Russia, you think they really care at all about that agenda? So what is this really all about? The world population reducing it. You see, if there's less of us and there's more of them, they get more stuff. They get more wealth. So as we look at the world, remember, it's become incredibly corrupt, but the agenda, this population agenda is demonic. It really is. And some of the things that we're seeing that make no sense to any of us don't make any sense unless you consider why they would want to mutilate and sterilize people by confusing them about their gender identity, why they would want to uh, promote abortion and come up with all different ways to kill children in the womb. As I look at that, God gives us eyes to see. We, we, we know what's really going on, right? It's not really just a moral issue. It's so much more than that. And so as it was in the days of Noah, there was a world population that was at least billions and billions of people, if not trillions. Who knows? I don't know. But there's no way that that population stayed small. So that's one thing to think about. That's how it was in the days of Noah. Now, during this time, with so many people, certain fallen angels came to earth. And this happened 120 years before the flood. And they actually cohabitated with women. I know that sounds like sci-fi, fantasy. Yet I want you to consider that every major world culture from ancient times, had myths and stories of this exact thing. Demigods were the offspring, in Greek and Roman mythology, were the offspring of gods and men and women. Where do they come up with those ideas? You see, that is a corruption or a storytelling of something that happened that the Bible records for us. To try to dismiss this and say it didn't happen would be to doubt the word of God. And you really can't look at this and, and, and dismiss it by coming up with an excuse that makes you feel more comfortable. I don't know how this is possible, but I know it happened, and I know the history of mankind records in their stories, in their myths, this very thing. So I'm going to lean on the side of this happened because the Bible says so. Amen? So looking at this, this is the obvious meaning of the text and, and the uniform interpretation of the ancient Jews. The sons of God, the Benai Elohim in Hebrew, mentioned in the book of Job, are the sons of God. They are not human beings. They are the angels. 
A similar phrase, Baralhim, refers to angels as well in Daniel and the, and the, and the, and the book of Psalms. So this is a, a phrase that's only used to describe angels or angelic creatures. And I imagine these angels were different than other types of angels. Whatever they were, they were able to fall to earth. They were able to cohabitate with daughters of men, that is, females, and have children. By the way, the daughters of men, Bathadam, totally different word, Bathadam, daughters of men, human beings, angelic creations. Now, the apocryphal books, which are not scripture, but are the Jewish mythology that would compare to some of the other cultures we're familiar with, like the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, uh, Norse mythology. These apocryphal books, like the book of Enoch, elaborate this interpretation, and it's even implied in the New Testament. So, you should not even think for a minute that this isn't the correct interpretation. The only way you can come up with another interpretation is if you're very uncomfortable with the truth. So angels, they don't marry in heaven. Jesus told us that, right? But these were not angels in heaven. These angels had fallen to earth. And boy, it's quiet in here. It's an uncomfortable subject, but it's true. And what was the judgment for this? Well, mankind's judgment for this sin was the flood which came 120 years later. When he says his, his years, uh, sometimes interpreted in that way, uh, then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be 120 years. That's not saying he's only going to live to be 120 years. For, for one thing, people live longer than that. That's, you got 120 years, and then I'm, I'm bringing destruction. And, it, and exactly 120 years later, that's exactly what happened. So it's not as if God didn't give them warning. And tell them that this was going to happen. Remember Methuselah. His death shall bring. That, 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 that's the, we talked about that, that, that name and what it means. And, and he lived 969 years. But when he was born, the prophecy surrounding his birth was that his, when he dies, his death will bring judgment. Will bring judgment. And indeed, in the very year that Methuselah died, the flood came. So God was giving them warning like he's given us warning, clearly. We have all of this scripture. We have Jesus' words in the New Testament. How serious are we going to take this? I don't know how much time we have. Oh, I'm, 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 please don't come up to me and say, Pastor Tim, do you think this is the end of the world? Please don't ask me that question because I'm going to say I don't think. Well, what do you mean you don't think? It doesn't matter what I think. I could be like every other celebrity pastor, write a book and tell you all about what I think, but I'd just be another fool who doesn't know anything. What do I know? It's, what did Bill start out by reading? No man. No man knows the day or the hour. So if you to go out there and start to think that this is what's happening and that's what's happening, you're wasting your time. Yes, pray for peace. Peace in our world, in all of the different conflicts. But please understand, some of what you're praying for isn't going to be fulfilled anyway because it says when they say peace, peace, sudden destruction comes. So we all act like this. Somehow we're going to, through prayer, we're going to prevent what ultimately is going to happen. Not going to be that case. Wars and rumors of wars. We're heading into the end times. Oh, no surprise there. So I don't really get too wigged out about what's going on in our world right now because I lived through the Gulf War. I lived through Desert Storm. You know, Saddam Hussein. I've, I've lived through all of it. And every once in a while, someone comes along and writes a book and then they have to burn that book because it didn't turn out to be true. But this book is the book you want to be in. Amen? So now back to our account here. Judgment did eventually come, but God is long-suffering with man's rebellion, always has been, seems like he always will be. 
But the hour of his judgment must come. And when we see these things I've mentioned, the, uh, all of the wicked, deceitful, horrible, demonic things that are being promoted in our world today and accepted by a large part of our culture, you realize judgment's on its way. Now, what if I said to you, as of today, 120 years from now, the Lord is coming? What if I said that? I'm not saying that. Not one of us would be here to see it. So if you're going to spend all of your time worried about whether tomorrow's the day, let me encourage you. You need to be busy about the Lord's business. You need to be busy about sharing the gospel and living your life for Christ. Not about trying to predict what's going to happen tomorrow in the news. Could be 120 minutes. At least I'd finish the study. Maybe. We don't know. That's the point. No one does. So... This, in verse 3, interesting, says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Apparently that's a prophecy that was given through a prophet and recorded by Noah. Now, who made this prophecy? Well, we really don't know. It might have been Noah himself, but probably was Methuselah. We just don't know. But it was recorded for us. They knew it was coming. It was given after Enoch had been translated, taken away which we talked about last week. And it happened before Noah's sons were born. Because the, born, the sons that were born to him that went on the ark were not born yet. So Noah remembers this. Noah writes all of this down. This is his account. And he mentions the Nephilim. Oh my goodness, there's so much written and spoken about the Nephilim. Sometimes interpreted giants in Scripture. But actually, the correct interpretation of that Hebrew word is fallen ones. Fallen ones. Now, they were on the earth before the flood. And what did we learn? Well, these creatures were the unholy offspring of fallen angels in mankind. They're called the Nephilim, the fallen ones. Uh, There were fallen angels. There were daughters of men, human beings. And they had children. And those children were called the fallen ones. In Greco-Roman mythology, they referred to as demigods. They were sometimes referred to as gods in other cultures. Uh, Think about Hercules or any of the myths you're probably familiar with. They almost always center in on human beings who are part something other than human being. Why is that? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. As mighty heroes, these Nephilim provide the true source of all the ancient myths. As the story was told and then told and then told, uh, it became more creative, but it also lost an element of the truth. Here the Bible preserves for us exactly what happened. They would have been considered demigods by the ancient people. These half-human, half-angelic beings would have been powerful indeed. Maybe they were very large people. I don't know. But I know this, they lived during the next 120 years, and then they eventually died in the flood. Now are you beginning to understand why God had to flood the earth? It was so much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. See, in Sodom and Gomorrah, things got so bad, and God just destroyed the five cities of the plain. Actually, he saved one of them, Zor. But do you understand that that's how bad things were in the days of Noah? Now remember, Jesus is mentioning the days of Noah to prepare us, not so much to tell us that things today are going to be exactly like the days of Noah. But I think it's safe to say things are wicked today. Judgment is on its way. That we know. I'm not not afraid to declare that prophetically. Judgment is coming. 
You know, you can be out there with the uh, sandwich board. The end of the world is near. Well, how near? I don't know, but it's near. Well, it's near. It's nearer today than it was last Sunday, so that's correct. But I don't know that you should live your life worried about what's going to happen. Understand something. The 120 years before the flood, man continued to do the worst, his very worst. His thoughts were evil continually, as we'll see. And imagine now you not only have human beings, and who knows how many, I'm going to say millions or billions or maybe even trillions of people, are on the earth. The earth looked very differently. It, didn't, it wasn't the same. There weren't the mountains and the valleys. It was a very, very different landmass. Uh, that was all destroyed in the flood, which we'll see in future studies. So as I consider all of this, I recognize that it makes sense that God would have to do something drastic and severe. And now the flood makes more sense to me, why he had to literally drown the entire earth. So can you imagine, though, living during those 120 years, you have all of those stories from mythology are actually happening on some level. You have these men of renown. It's described here. Uh, it says they were the heroes of old men of renown. So you have these heroes. And, and by the way, who knows how intelligent they were? Who knows how strong they were? I often think that uh, it, it, who knows what knowledge they had? I, I'm kind of glad we don't have that information. Mankind is doing enough damage to his world and to, to his fellow man without all of that. I do not believe we're living in a day and an age where you have half angel, half human hybrids running around. But oh my goodness, things are bad enough with the knuckleheads we have running around. So think about this. How bad must it have been? I'm trying to paint that picture. So you understand the flood was a mercy to mankind. A mercy. Now what happened when the flood came? We'll talk about the flood in future studies, but... These Nephilim, these fallen ones, uh, these heroes, okay? So they, they could not have survived the flood. They were, after all, part human. But what happened to their spirits? Now, we know as human beings, when we die, our spirits go to the place called by the Jews, Sheol, or Hades by the Greeks, the place of the dead, Abraham's bosom referred to by Jesus. That's what happened. Well, when Christ died, he descended into that place and he led those captives free. And now we know as Christians to be absent in body, that is to be dead, is to be present with the Lord. But the person that doesn't know Jesus goes to this place called Hades where they await ultimate judgment. It's where the idea for purgatory came from. But the purgatory is not true. It's where the idea came from. The idea that you go to this place called Hades and ultimately at the great white throne judgment, you're judged for your sins and cast into another place called hell. Hell and Hades are not the same. So that's what the scripture teaches us. But what happened to the spirits of the Nephilim? I don't know, but they may not have been restricted to Hades or Sheol the way that human spirits are. In fact, this could account for the origin of disembodied evil spirits. Ghosts, which show up in every single world culture, especially the ancient ones. All right? We call them ghosts. We tend to think that they are the spirits of human beings, but they're more than likely the spirits of something other than just human beings. These are maybe the demons that continue to influence mankind today. After all, that would explain their strong desire to possess a physical body. They once had one. So fallen angels and demons are not the same thing, apparently. 
disembodied spirits that want to possess a body versus fallen angels that have a body. So this may be really enlightening some of you as to spiritual things, but it's in the book of Genesis, and it's talked about in other places as well. So I'm going to share a little bit more on this, and then we'll go on. So the one thing that I think we need to make sure that we address, and there was a book uh, written, I can't remember the name of him, of, of the, the author or the book, and it's just probably a good thing. Uh, it was a lot of baloney, writing about how the Nephilim are, were still alive after the flood. Uh, that would defeat the whole purpose of bringing the flood, right? I mean, wouldn't it? I mean, that doesn't make much sense. But anyway, there were giants in the land, right? There were giants in Canaan, and they were later thought to be descended from the Nephilim. In fact, the, the spies in numbers, when they went into the land, came out and they said, there are Nephilim in the land. Uh, that doesn't mean there were. That means that they thought there were. They were known as the Anakim, not the Nephilim, the Anakim, but they could not have been the Nephilim. This was simply the exaggerated report, you know, the boogeyman, the exaggerated report of the ten fearful witnesses. The other two said, we can take them. The other ten said, there's Nephilim, we can't take them. But they weren't Nephilim. They had already died out. So where do these giant human beings come from? Well, that's another study for another time, but they weren't the result of this unholy union because those individuals, those Nephilim, died. By the way, as far as we know, they were probably all male, but we, we can't prove that. But if you look at the myths, most of, that, uh, most of the myths point in that direction, strangely enough. Okay, enough about all that stuff. Uh, we may have, in just these few verses, begun to understand uh, some of the origins of, of ghosts and demons and evil spirits. Uh, also, all of the mythology that we're so familiar with makes sense. But this is the truth. All of that is storytelling. Good storytelling, interesting storytelling, fascinating to read, but simply not entirely true. Now, one of the things I do want to address is notice here, it says... The Nephilim in verse 4 were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So people will read that and also afterwards and they'll say, well, see, there were Nephilim afterward. Well, when was afterward? After what? After 120 years? Yeah. So back then this happened and for the next 120 years, which is afterward, there were Nephilim on the earth, but I don't believe they lived a day longer than the flood. Okay, so having said that, let's move on. Now, the fallen angels that father the Nephilim were judged by God for their sins. You need to know this. How do I know that? We go to the book. We go to God's word. I'm going to read for you a passage from 2 Peter, and it's in chapter 2 and verse 4. This is very telling. Now, this is the New Testament perspective on Genesis 6. It's commentary written by the inspired writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in this case, Peter. He says, regarding judgment in verse 4 of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, not hell, as it's translated in English, Tartarus, all right, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And then it goes on to say, if he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood, and, you know, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's basically saying, if he did those things, he's going he's gonna to judge He's not going to hold back. Judgment is on its way. And that's basically his warning that the day of judgment is coming. But he starts by talking about what happened here in Genesis 6. Now, let's realize that that word Tartarus is a Greek word, just like Hades is a Greek word. They were bound by God. We're told that 
They were bound by God for their sin. They were prevented from further cohabitation. The Nephilim died in the flood, but what happened to the fallen angels? They're not human beings. There is something very different, and I suspect, well, apparently the flood couldn't kill them. So God did something. I don't know exactly what he did. It might be some interdimensional prison. But for whatever reason, the word Tartarus is used so that we'll understand that it's a, it's a prison. Because in Greek mythology, it describes the lowest hell. Tartarus was as far beneath Hades as heaven is high above the earth, according to the Greeks. The Greek myths identify Tartarus as the prison of the elder gods, referred to as the Titans. If you're very familiar with Greek mythology, you know that there were the elder gods and then there were the gods, and the elder gods were the Titans. They were imprisoned by the gods that we are probably familiar with, Zeus and and others. So all of this is lining up very well with Greek mythology, but it's also the same words because guess what? The New Testament is written in what language? Greek. So that helps us to understand that. Again, many of these myths, poetic, poetic descriptions of ancient events. But they were bound in gloomy dungeons and held for judgment. Okay, what does Jude have to say about this event in Genesis 6? Well, in Jude 6, this is what we read. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Same message, said differently. We learn a few things there, that these angels are bound in darkness, held for judgment on the great day. What's the great day? God's judgment. During the time of judgment, when Christ will come again. They left their God-given position of authority, principality, and origin, we're told. They abandoned their habitation, their home, their dwelling place. Apparently, their spiritual bodies as well. But they are bound, present tense, as were the titans of Greek mythology, with everlasting chains. And they will be bound there in Tartarus until God chooses to release them. Where is Tartarus? No idea. Not going to look for it. I don't even think Indiana Jones will probably go there. Getting too old now, I guess. So you think, you see, these words tell us something about the mindset of the ancient culture and how they thought about the place of the dead, Hades. The place we call Abraham's bosom, paradisio, paradise. Tartarus, the prison, the abyss, the bottomless pit. All of these things come up in, in the Greek stories, but, you know, They have an origin in reality, and these things are mentioned in the Bible. Okay, where are they bound? Uh, We don't know, but I'm going to share something with you that might freak you out just a little bit. I hope you're not planning a trip to Iraq anytime soon. Probably not, but if you were, you might want to avoid a specific location. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 19. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. I'll read it for you. Uh, Sorry, not 19, chapter 9 in the book of Revelation. And in verses 14... And 15, we learn the last thing the Bible has to say about these fallen angels. In verse 14, we read, There was a sixth angel, and it said to the sixth angel, uh, by the way, let me just back up to verse 13. Uh, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said, that is the voice, said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
So, how many angels came down in Genesis 6? We're not told how many, just like we're not told how many wise men there were. It's a good trivia question if you ever want to ask around Christmas. Oh, so how many wise men? Everyone's going to say three, and it doesn't say. Probably a lot more than three. They always assume three because of the gifts, right? Frankincense, myrrh, and gold. We assume that this must have been a lot of angels. Listen, four could have got the job done, and it seems they did. So this is what we learn in the scriptures about these fallen angels. They are bound by God in an earthly prison in a specific location, apparently a rock. Uh, what does that mean? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's kind of vague, but uh, the area in or under the Euphrates is the cradle of early civilization. That much we do know, according to Genesis. It is the site of the Tower of Babel, or Babylon, the center of false religions and world dictatorships. We do know this, according to Revelation 16, the Euphrates River will be dried up during the sixth bowl judgment in the last days. Uh, This will prepare a thoroughfare for a huge eastern army to attack Israel. These four beings are, I want to repeat, not evil spirits. They are fallen angels. They have a physical form. They are bound somehow. I can't help. Any Superman fans here? Okay, remember that? Jason, where are you, Jason? What do we call that thing where they bound uh, General Zod and the other two? He's getting, you're getting, you're getting old. The Phantom Zone. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Steve helped you out, right? Gave you a lifeline. Remember when they were in that, like, square back, going back to, you know, Christopher Reeve. But, and they're bound. In other, when I saw that, I thought, ooh, what's that, you know? So, like, yeah, I'm a little weird. I know that. But, but. Wherever God bound these beings, they are bound. They can't get out. That's the point. God's got plans for them, though, because he's going to release them at some point. The Bible tells us that. Again, they're not evil spirits. We're dealing with evil spirits today. Most of them have offices in the West Wing. But fallen angels have a physical form. They are being kept ready for this exact moment in the future. And the purpose of their release is to orchestrate the death of a third of mankind. Does that sound like it lines up with the agenda that we talked about in our opening? Killing a third of mankind would make some people very, very happy. Especially these individuals. And I don't want to start naming names like Bill Gates or anything. I'm having a little fun this morning. But these people got a lot of money and a lot of influence and a lot of power, and they seem to be hell-bent on killing as many people as they can. I'm not going to get into all the conspiracy theories about pandemics and things of that nature. I actually think the last one was a botched attempt. I don't think it worked as well as they wanted it to. But this I do know. The devil, the demons, the fallen angels, they all have one goal. It's to destroy mankind and as many of them as they can. So here's what we're dealing with in the days of Noah, and we're now beginning to deal with some of these things, not all of them, some of these things in our world today. It's okay, run right across the pulpit, guys, no problem. So those are the sins of angels. How about the corruption of mankind? Mankind had become thoroughly corrupt in every way. Let me read just a few more verses and then we'll close for this morning. Look look at verse 5. The Lord saw 
how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, we're not there yet, but it's not hard to imagine we'll eventually get there. I can tell you one of the things that will assist this is the rapture of the church. You take out all the people in the world who love God and are serving God, and it's pretty sure that what you're left with will make Hamas look like a Sunday picnic. And I do not say that lightly. Here's the thing. It says in verse 6, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Yes, God feels pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Not surprised at what happened. Just grieved at what had happened. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord, and this is the account of Noah. That section ends right there in the middle of verse 9. This is Noah's account. Only Noah could have accounted for this. The corruption of mankind. Man had become thoroughly corrupt in every way. The fallen nature of mankind had wreaked havoc on the earth, partly due to man's complete surrender to his sinful nature. We're seeing that today. Significantly increased after the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which we just studied. Man had replaced God with the unholy offspring of men and of angels. He had made his own gods. And that's starting to happen today. Mankind's choice to reject God and his will caused God unimaginable pain. You can't even begin to understand the pain it caused God. We probably never will. Adam and Eve had started a rebellion that created hell on earth. Satan inspired this rebellion, intent on one thing, wounding the heart of God. In that, he succeeded. If his goal was to cause God, the creator of the universe, pain, that he succeeded in. God allowed it, but that's what happened. And so this rebellion ultimately demanded something, that God's own son die on a cross. The unimaginable pain that Christ suffered during his crucifixion surely is comparable to the pain that God suffered in his heart when this took place. Now, the one is physical and the other is emotional, if you will, if we can ascribe emotions in that way to God. But all of it tells us one thing very clearly. God suffered the sins of mankind. He suffered. He suffered. Mankind needed to be purged of this rebellion in order to ensure his survival. There was no hope for the ancient world. It was too far gone to save. Man's genetic code had become compromised through interbreeding. Think about that. His genetic code had been compromised through interbreeding over 120 years. Man had become so infected by sin that destruction was the only cure, and so the Lord chose to destroy his beloved creation in order to save man, save mankind. He was grieved by the fall of man, but it never thwarted his plan for salvation. Amen? And God chose to show grace to Noah and his family. He significantly emphasizes that he was spared God's judgment by God's grace. God's grace is found in him, not earned by us. 
Now, how many people were left on the earth that weren't genetically altered? I don't know, but I know that Noah and his wife and his three children, their sons and their wives were not because they were on the ark. And so that was God's plan. But remember, the ark was the one way of salvation available to mankind at that time. The Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. There were opportunities for people to enter the ark. God knew that people wouldn't. But there was opportunity. They didn't enter the ark. It says God closed the door. And then the floods came. We'll see that in future studies. There's one box, if you will, that you can get into at this time to be saved. And Noah and seven others were on that ark. There is one way in which a man or a woman can be saved. It's not through the ark anymore. Oh, it's also made of wood. But it's the cross of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day to give us newness of life. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus Christ. Noah finishes his account. This is all Noah has to share with us. Everything else now becomes the account or the generations of Noah's sons and even Shem. But Noah has now shared what he wanted us to know and which is included by Moses in the books of Moses. By the way, this is the third occurrence of a formula. We've seen it before. That marks the key subdivisions of this book. Moses uses the word toledoth in Hebrew, generations, ten times in the book of Genesis. I've mentioned this before. This is the word from which the book gets its name, Genesis, because of this word. The Greek version of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, renders it Genesis. It's also translated genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament. But each of these major divisions can be recognized by this recurring phrase, this is the account of, that's the signature. Noah would have had personal knowledge of the events of chapters 5 and 6, and pretty much only Noah at that time. This section was originally written by him, this is his signature, this verse, the first half of chapter 9. And this phrase represents the writer's signatures as they continue to conclude their individual accounts. This term, the terminology of ancient Babylon, shows up on their tablets. They confirm this practice. Archaeology makes this clear. Each of these patriarchs kept the narrative records of their own generations, their history, and then they inscribed them on stone or clay tablets. They appended their name to the end. And so the history of mankind continued to be recorded from the beginning of time and then passed on to Moses, who has passed it on to us. These tablets eventually came down to him. He wrote the last section of the book of Genesis, having received that information from the sons of Jacob. Then he organized and edited all of the original narratives, choosing to take some details from one writer or another and put it together in a narrative. And if it seems like they're separate accounts, it's because they are. They're edited together by Moses under divine inspiration. And so the result was the entire collection finally became the first five books, first of the five books of Moses. Now, I've gone a long way today to make this point, but you can trust the word of God. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. They were completely unprepared. Even with all of that going on, it doesn't seem that anyone really believed God was going to bring his judgment. They mocked Noah, I'm sure, and his sons as they built the ark, 
over that 100-year period, over 100 years, and yet the rains came. When judgment came, the only people who were saved were eight individuals. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, when the cities of the plain were destroyed, it was just Lot, his wife, who ran back, actually went back, and his two daughters. I can't say how many people there are in the world today that love Christ. I have no idea. We are nowhere near those numbers. Four? Eight? Remember, God said to Noah, excuse me, to Abraham, that he would spare the cities of the plain if there were ten righteous people. So can I please respectfully beg you to stop belly aching about the end of the world? Don't do it. That's not the heart of God. People get so caught up in worrying and trying to predict what's coming next. You know what's coming? Judgment, eventually. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable day. Today is the day we get to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's what I want to talk about. That's what I'm going to preach on Sunday mornings. What's going on in Israel is going on in Israel. What's going on in your heart? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Do you know Christ? Are you on the ark? If judgment came tomorrow, where would you be? Would you be left behind? By the way, I do believe when that rapture of the church comes, it's going to, it's going to come down to just a handful of people. And yet we're told the end is not yet come. There still be another seven years of God pleading with mankind to repent. So take a deep breath. Tomorrow could be your day that you meet Christ. You don't have to be raptured. It doesn't have to be the end of the world for you to stand before God and be judged for your sins. But you can be judged in Christ righteous today by faith to as many as received them, to those that believed on his name. He gave them the right to be called the children of God. Are you a child of God? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, that's the most important element of this entire account. The days of Noah teach us that judgment is coming, but until it comes, we have an opportunity to repent. You told us these things so that we would be prepared. That when you come, we wouldn't be surprised. We wouldn't be taken off guard. That we would be prepared and ready and waiting for your return. You've given us a mission. You've given us a charge, a commission to go into all the earth, making disciples, that is teaching people the truth, not just winning souls, but teaching souls. Go into all the earth, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that you've commanded us. Oh, Lord God, and you are with us and you've told us that. May we be busy about the things that are most important. We pray for all those we love and all those we know who, who may not accept this truth or understand this truth. And we even pray for those people who are caught up in this wicked world system that you'd redeem them and restore them to humanity so that they can come to you for salvation. Oh, Lord God, we cry out to you and I pray for every heart here. May no one leave this place today not ready for judgment to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.